There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, quick note before we begin that I am taking Monday episodes off to finish production on our upcoming Thunder Bay podcast with Ryan McMahon. Filling in for me today is one of the most consistently sharp and interesting and funny journalists out there from Vice, Manisha Krishnan. I grew up in Vancouver smoking a lot of weed. It's basically impossible to avoid in British Columbia, home of the famed BC Bud. I remember one time as a teenager, my mom busted me and lectured me about how people who smoke weed are losers. I told her if she really felt that way, she had chosen the wrong place to raise a kid. Even then, I remember believing that Canada would legalize cannabis. But I never imagined that shift would become the key component of my job as a weed beat reporter. People have never really taken weed seriously, and I guess to a degree that's fair. I mean, I once interviewed a source who literally went by the name Bong Hit. But the fact is, when Canada legalizes recreational cannabis on October 17th, it will be the most significant shift in drug policy this country has seen in close to a century. It's extremely rare to witness an industry go from being completely illegal and highly stigmatized to regulated, marketed, and on track to rake in billions of dollars. Even a couple of years ago, with the notable exception of Vice, weed reporters were relatively unheard of in mainstream media. Last year, I considered submitting myself for a Beat Reporter Award, 
but was advised not to by another journalist because she didn't believe weed would be recognized as a legitimate beat. But now every major news outlet has journalists dedicated to this industry, particularly on the business side of things. Just this past month, the Globe and Mail launched a cannabis newsletter for industry insiders that costs $1,000 for a yearly subscription. But not all the coverage out there is great. Journalists, even those now reporting in the space, are still brushing up on their weed literacy, which means a lot of misinformation and myths from the reefer madness era still get published. Meanwhile, legal cannabis companies are experiencing unprecedented growth and investment. And if my inbox is any indication, they aren't holding back any of that cash when it comes to marketing. But despite the fact that outlets are investing in cannabis coverage, there are still lots of questions. Like how do journalists cut through the noise, the misinformation, and Big Weed's marketing machine to do this beat justice? And also, what's the shelf life of weed journalism? You don't really hear about alcohol beat reporters. Here to help me sort through this shit show are Vanmala Subramaniam, who covers the business of cannabis for the Financial Post, and Ricardo Baca, America's first full-time weed editor who ran The Cannabist, the Denver Post's now-defunct weed vertical. Baca now runs Grasslands, a communications agency geared at the cannabis industry. Wait for it. Jesse again to tell you that this episode is brought to you by Alexandra DeCare, Helene Massicot, Jeffrey Dean, Jamie Folds, Janice Neal, Karen Mann, Leslie Corliss, and Melissa Graham. Hi, my name is Melissa. I work for a nonprofit and I'm an activist in Toronto. I've supported Canada Land for a few years now. And though my background has little to do with journalism, I've learned a lot about how journalism works. I'm glad that the show is syndicated so that people have access to it across Canada. And thank you to the team for all the work you do. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month 
at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. I wanted to start off by asking the both of you what your impressions were of cannabis, just leaving out the reporting part of it. But what did you think about weed before you even got into this beat? <laughs> Van, I'll start with you. <laughs> what I thought about weed. All right. So I think I had a very different experience than many Canadians. I grew up in Malaysia and that's the death penalty in Malaysia for any kind of possession of uh, marijuana or obviously trafficking of it. So I grew up in this environment where I thought weed was on par with hard class A drugs like cocaine, heroin. It was terrible for you. We had this say no to drugs campaign in school where they would actually refer to drug addicts as the rubbish of society. I'm translating that from Malay. Um, so I just grew up with this idea that any kind of drug, including ganja, is awful. You don't go near it. You don't touch it. It's meant for people who, you know, just don't have a life, which is a very harsh, <laughs> very conservative view of drugs. And it's funny that now I find myself reporting on it. So. <laughs> That's brutal. Uh, Ricardo, how about yourself? You know, not quite that severe a background, certainly, but <laughs> that's amazing. You know, I, I certainly... The death penalty. Uh, yeah, I, I was definitely that uh, elementary school kid in the 80s with the Just Say No t-shirt. And I bought what they told me. You know, these are my presidents and my teachers and my parents and my mentors. And so I grew up well into my 30s thinking that cannabis would kill you. And it didn't help that I was never really an avid consumer because my lungs just don't tolerate smoke. So I don't smoke. And oddly, right before I was introduced to the weed beat and appointed the Denver Post's first cannabis editor, that was right after I started consuming cannabis regularly. And that actually came uh, via edibles that were made via the, the state-regulated marketplace. And so finally I recognized, uh, wait a minute, this, this substance is actually for me and I don't have to inhale, I don't have to ingest the smoke. And then I started questioning certainly what I'd been told. And as soon as I recognized that this was my beat and I needed to understand it inside and out, um, you know, the the dominoes began to fall in terms of the lies um, that we've all been told over decades upon decades. Mm -hmm. And 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 I really feel like that's one of our primary um, positions as modern journalists covering cannabis and legalization. And the implementation of this is to spread quality information that's been vetted, that is uh, rooted in fact. Wow. Okay. That was a great answer. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. Um, I'm just going to give you guys a little bit of my background. So I grew up in BC, in Vancouver, um, started smoking weed in high school. You know, we have BC Bud, it's everywhere. But I did sort of slip into that stoner stereotype where I was like, just like, going to the parking lot, smoking weed, like every day kind of thing, like a, a little bit of a burnout, maybe. <laughs> I started just being really paranoid and anxious. And so I actually got more into it after I moved into Toronto and started covering it. That sort of opened my eyes to the fact that there's all these different types of strains. And, and I sort of got like an education on the different ways that you can use it. And like, you don't have to just do like 10 <laughs> bong hits and get completely blitzed out of your mind. Yeah. So that was sort of my, what my journey was, if you will. Yeah, I think, um, you know, when I was in university in Toronto, 
I had a bad experience with smoking up a couple of times. I just got really paranoid and then associated weed with making me paranoid. But I had no understanding of different strains. Right. Yeah. Even like even the fact that people are micro dosing it now, like it affects everybody in a completely different way, especially somebody who may have absolutely no experience with it. So um, I want to talk about kind of your first impressions when you realized that you would be a weed beat reporter. Ricardo, in your case, you were, is it the first cannabis editor in America? I think so. I think so. (laughs) Uh, You know. Okay. So that is quite, (laughs) that is quite a title. Um, So I'm just wondering, you know, what was going through your mind when you were given that role? You know, it was encouraging, um, especially just knowing that the newspaper I was working for, I I worked at the Denver Post for 16 years. um, It was just encouraging to see that they recognized that there were flaws with how this substance had been covered over the years um, and that they wanted to not only dedicate multiple full-time employees to cover this first-of-its-kind implementation, but also that they wanted to change it up a little bit. You know, when when they first approached me about um, this appointment as cannabis editor, they they told me they expected very serious work, but they also expected me to have fun with it. And of course, I was coming over from the entertainment desk. I was the entertainment editor and the music critic, and it was great fun. But just knowing that they wanted me to, of course, cover the breaking news in this first ever world market, um, but also make sure that we were having fun with it too by publishing legit recipes written by, you know, authors who had written cookbooks, but also hire strain critics, cannabis critics who had unique takes on it. Um, I just thought that this was such a you know, it was the opportunity of a lifetime, really. You know, it was something I ran by my wife and my mom, and they both required a little bit of walking through it. They're like, what do you mean a weed editor? But um, they immediately <laughs> got it less than five minutes into the conversation, and, and I accepted the position the next day, and we were off and running. I mean, yeah, what you just said about the whole what do you mean a weed editor I mean, I want to talk a little bit about the respectability of it because my dad, you know, he's seen some of my stuff on Vice and he's like, <laughs> what is this? Like, are you a, are you part of some sort of marijuana group? <laughs> like, he's like, it just seems like somebody just gave you guys a bunch of money to smoke weed. And I'm like, well, you know, yeah, to a certain degree, maybe. But also I'm like, dad, I interviewed the prime minister like this is a huge issue. And even last year, uh, I was considering submitting to some awards as a weed beat reporter And one of my friends who works at a more traditional outlet was like, I don't think you should do that because I don't think that the judges would take that beat seriously. So I'm just curious how far we've come on the sort of respectability scale of it. Van, what do you think about that, particularly because you report on the business of cannabis? Yeah, so I think I I got into this beat from a very traditional mainstream media background. I was at the CBC for six years primarily doing business reporting, doing some investigative work, none of which was related to cannabis. And then I joined Vice. And the whole, I guess, Vice establishment really had a head start in reporting on weed. And so when I came in there as a a business journalist for Vice, the natural progression was for me to think about like some sort of money angle that related to cannabis. And I guess the reason why weed is such a big business story in Canada is because 
It's the only country where cannabis companies are publicly listed. So are allowed to be publicly listed, meaning that you and I, Joe and Mary on the street, can buy cannabis stocks and invest in it. And because of that retail investor connection, that makes it a story. And so that's how I kind of got into read reporting. I started reporting on pot stocks. I remember my first article was simply on should you buy pot stocks? And it was back in 2016 where very few of these companies were publicly listed. They were starting to get there. Right now, you have a little bit over 70 companies that are publicly listed, both American and Canadian, on Canadian stock exchanges. So it's a massive billion-dollar industry. In fact, um, the biggest cannabis company out in BC, Tilray, is worth... 14 billion when I last checked on the market. So I started reporting it from just let's follow the money. Like, are these companies valued in the way that they say they are on the market? Because really, they haven't started actually selling any products because legalization is only on October 17th. And then I noticed, you know, a whole bunch of other business publications started also reporting on the cannabis beat because cannabis stocks started moving the Toronto Stock Exchange so much. So it just became, I guess, like, you know, a business story that you have to report on, which is kind of why outlets like Bloomberg, the Financial Post, where I am right now, and the Globe all started hiring cannabis reporters. Yeah, I think I do think that the the business and the money angle is a huge part of why media outlets are now investing so much into this beat, um, obviously, because media companies are all struggling and they want to rake in whatever type of marketing and advertising dollars that they can. Absolutely. And it's actually a very clickable beat. So it's a very lucrative beat for media outlets in that way, too, because there's so many questions, so much curiosity surrounding legalization. When you write on pot stocks, people click on it. And I think editors realize that. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why weed reporting has become a big part of the business beat. Ricardo, what are your thoughts on that? And what are your thoughts on sort of media outlets capitalizing on this relatively new beat um, and in terms of how that translates into revenue for these companies? Yeah, so I think it makes sense. You know, we can use the word capitalize. Sure. I mean, uh, a newspaper needs to make decisions on beats and personnel that are going to be good for the bottom line, but also they need to make those decisions that are going to be good for the community and the readers that they serve. But at the same time, you know, what's fascinating about this beat and the varying trajectories that we're kind of experiencing in this in this conversation, especially as we get further and further away from January 1st, 2014, when our legal sales began down here, this is a hot subject matter while you're going through this tumultuous change. Without a doubt, I think the public is fascinated by it, as they should be, because with, you know, hands down, this is the largest drug policy story of our lifetime. And I don't know if that will be overtaken in the next few decades, because I believe this truly is the first domino to fall. And, and now we're already seeing it more socially acceptable to talk about the potential medical legalization of psilocybin mushrooms and MDMA and LSD mm-hmm. in state houses across the U.S. Um, so this is the first domino. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you know, the traditional media covering 
uh, cannabis as a traditional industry, which now it's becoming, you know, helps normalize the plant and legalization itself. And with normalization comes, you know, oh, that suddenly that's normal and that's boring and it has less value as a beat um, years and years later, at least from that clickability factor. Of course, I think this nascent industry needs watchdog reporters. It needs us paying very close attention to what's being done, what's being said, what's being sold. Um, But the readers will become less interested in the subject matter um, as the years progress. And I think that's something we've witnessed down here in Colorado and certainly California and the entire West Coast of the U.S. I just want to jump in because Ricardo mentioned how weed reporting being so mainstream has kind of normalized the drug. I would add only to some extent because I have had these experiences when I meet up with, you know, certain sources on Bay Street in Toronto, investors, analysts uh, who cover the market so extensively. And it's basically the, you know, their primary job. They have a very... uh, you know, they're still very conservative about cannabis. So, for instance, they would say, I don't smoke or I've only dabbled in it once, maybe. And they really like to make that clear so as to not come across as someone who consumes the product so much, which is kind of odd to me because they're in the space, they're investing in this product. Right. They supposedly believe in it. Well, it's like they want to make money off of it, but they don't necessarily want to be associated with the stigma that they clearly still feel exists. Absolutely. And these threads of hypocrisy you can see also exist in former government officials and DA officials Mm -hmm. and police officials. Manisha, you've written about this quite a bit, coming in to the cannabis space as investors. So they were the people who clearly thought it was wrong, locked up a whole bunch of people for possession, or I I guess had a had a say in very conservative drug policy, and are now thinking, okay, this industry is lucrative. I might want to get into it too. So I think those are the things that, you know, we need to keep hammering home in our mm-hmm. reporting on this. And it's very easy to get caught up with how much money these companies are making and how actually great legalization is because it's a great story worth telling. But it's really important, in my opinion, at least to point out like, you know, that guy used to actually lock up drug dealers or lock up people who smoked weed. That weed executive has never rolled a joint in his life. (laughs) 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 Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's super interesting. Kind of on the flip side of that, though, I wanted to ask you guys, What is kind of the strangest or most hilarious situation that you found yourself in reporting on this beat? Because I feel like I have found myself in some pretty strange places. I went to a cannabis themed prom once where uh, they had like a dab bar set up. That was my first time seeing a dab bar. This was a couple years ago. And um, I did a dab and then I did another dab (laughs) And I, <laughs> and I picked up my shit and ran out of that place. I was so paranoid, being paranoid that I was going to run into my boss on my way home. And then I got back to my room and barfed, and I just laid beside my barf. <laughs> but anyway, oh. it was on account of this assignment that I was on. But I've had some like strange things come up. So I'm just wondering if you guys have had any sort of weird or quirky experiences. I I, I don't think I definitely <laughs> cannot top that. But I would say I've had some very interesting experiences from the point of 
how these companies are navigating transition to a legal market. So for instance, the whole bunch of cannabis conferences and investor conferences, like it's it's like every month in every big city in the world, there'll be some sort of cannabis event. And so um, an event I went to, I noticed that this specific company, and I'm not going to name what company it is, was testing products on investors actually who were at the conference <laughs> um, and, sounds like and a great so, idea yeah <laughs> and so you know and it was in a quite a quite a popular uh, pub in downtown Toronto and uh, they had a license to have the party and that's not legal here so I I, di- <laughs> I did find that interesting but at the same time I was like well I mean they got it they got to test the product somehow like how how would they do that you know <laughs> so it's an interesting example of what takes place in this space um yeah yeah what about you Ricardo any any word stories oh you know this beat is just full of such insane absurdity especially like mid implementation where you guys are I mean even what California is going through right Mm -hmm. now I mean but you know I've been reporting on this since 2013 and so I've been fortunate enough to take this reporting on the road and certainly have reported from the world's first country to legalize federally I've spent a couple weeks down in um, Montevideo area in Uruguay and, and have Right, reported right. deep into the mount the rift mountains of Morocco but you you did say strange so Here's one of my strangest stories. <laughs> um, they were debuting the Snoop Dogg's brand a couple years ago, and Colorado was the first market that that was uh, debuting in, Leafs by Snoop. And they were partnered with one of the largest chain of dispensaries called Livewell. And mm-hmm. all we knew as the media and the attorneys who had gathered in this hotel lobby that night was that we were probably going to be hanging with Snoop, and we didn't. they couldn't tell us where we were going. But they were taking our phones before we got even into the limo bus, and so we get into the limo bus, the phones are gone. We suddenly pull up into the suburbs of Denver into this giant kind of mansion uh, complex. And sure enough, we get out and there's Snoop Dogg and there's his homies and we're hanging out and he DJs and he performs and he's smoking everybody out and we're just chatting. And then finally, I I ask somebody, I was like, where are we? What mansion are we in the Denver suburbs? And somebody told me it was the owner of Livewell's house. Um, this, this guy named John Lord owns Livewell, and sure enough, he personally hosted that party at his house only because, as it's difficult in Toronto, as you guys just talked about, it was illegal to host that consumption party anywhere else outside of a private residence. And so, next thing you know, we're getting high with Snoop <laughs> and this uh, this weed mogul in his personal private house with a bunch of journalists and attorneys. It was super bizarre. Oh my God, that sounds amazing. Hopefully something to look forward to on my end. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the coverage itself and some of the issues that we have all probably noticed in mainstream coverage of cannabis. Of course, there's the annoying, you know, puns, the pot pun, oh, oh cannabis and whatever else. But, um, you know, what are some of the main issues that you guys have seen with some of the mainstream coverage? Um, you know, on, on my end, I've had I've had uh, a radio host tell me that weed causes you to fall into a K-hole, which is <laughs> a K-hole, something that happens when you take ketamine, which is a different drug. I've read columns that have blamed the fentanyl crisis on pot. So there's been a lot of sort of myths that I've seen out there. I'm just curious about some of the things you guys have noticed. The thing I've noticed most in the last six months is the frenzy in which 
especially business news publications are covering the beat. So I sometimes think there's no, you know, they're not distinguishing what exactly is a story worth covering versus Mm -hmm. this is a press release I got in my inbox and it's about cannabis. Maybe we should hit it. And so the space in Canada is so interesting because there are so many companies, so many of them are publicly listed, and there are so many mergers and acquisitions going on within these companies and deals from, like, say, drinks companies, uh, you know, getting into the space that uh, it can feel very promotional. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I, when I read an article, I almost think, you know, this actually sounds like the press release that was sent by the company to the newspaper or to the publication. And we're basically regurgitating it because we ourselves are getting caught up in the frenzy of how big this industry is and how much money is in it. Yeah, Ricardo, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, I have lots of criticisms about cannabis coverage, whether we're talking about mainstream publications or the more niche outlets. But, you know, if any media outlet is not treating the cannabis industry like any other industry, then they're immediately wrong. Um, They need to be approaching this as if it's oil and gas, as if it's airlines, as if it's alcohol. You know, this is an industry that needs watchdogs. It needs investigative reporters and data journalists and business journalists, culture writers, all of that. And then you're absolutely right in the fact that we are still printing and repeating the misinformation of decades of prohibition and an unjust uh, drug war. And and if our job truly is to spread quality vetted information, then we're clearly doing our readers a disservice. Um, And I think it all comes down to just making sure that somebody in your newsroom, somebody in your organization, no matter how big or small it is, has this subject matter expertise, because then that person can be your North Star in terms of guiding your coverage to a place that's fair, and that holds certainly the industry accountable, but also holds the government and the regulators accountable as well. Yeah, I I actually find that there's a lack of cannabis literacy amongst a lot of journalists, um, which really does impact the coverage because sometimes you'll have these warnings. You know, for example, I wrote a story yesterday. The Manitoba government had issued these public service announcements. They were super over the top. First of all, very corny. They had like the skull and crossbones. Mm -hmm. And it said street cannabis could put your life at risk. Um, and, And it said stuff like it could lower your IQ. And then it used the example of three plus three equals seven. Um, Um, And of course, you know, my instinct is to fact check that. And I've also fact checked Health Canada's warnings because those warnings are also come with a lot of nuance that um, I didn't see any other media outlet doing that. All I see is stories that are like Health Canada has issued these warnings about cannabis. And so it's like you really need people who are challenging even the government's messaging on this because don't forget, the government is the one who had enforced prohibition for the last century. Um, So why would we necessarily trust them just the same way that journalists wouldn't necessarily trust them on anything, right? Like we were, our job is to question them. And granted, that's specifically on the subject of uh, social consumption or public mm-hmm. use. Um, but that hypocrisy exists everywhere. And and you're right. I saw the Manitoba regs come out uh, the other day, and and it seems like it's something straight out of 1981. <laughs> and 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 that's governments cannot do that. We we have the internet at our disposal now, and we have a wealth of quality information, including the 
the most prominent health authorities in in Canada and the U.S. telling us that cannabis is non-toxic, non-deadly, and does not take any lives. Whereas, at least down here in the U.S., we lose nearly 80,000 lives a year to alcohol and I think upwards of 35,000 lives a year to prescription opioids. So let's let's direct the real talk to where the real talk actually belongs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's so interesting, Ricardo, that you are drawing the parallel between alcohol because it's decades of lobbying by the alcohol industry that's basically made mm-hmm. it seem... I guess, you know, buried the effects of alcohol and they're starting to come out in little ways. Um, it's an interesting story to observe how the cannabis companies in Canada are lobbying because and how they're really marketing themselves within a regime of, I, I guess, very, very strict advertising. So, for instance, one of the things that they're doing um when I go to these investor conferences, their presentations always focus on the fact that they're not alcohol. So the companies are like, if you want some sort of stimulant in your life, but you don't want to put on weight, why don't you try cannabis? So it has been a very effective marketing tool for these companies. But we also do need to be careful of that because, yes, there is a lot of science out there on weed on cannabis. But, you know, I I would be also cautious of letting the industry, the licensed producers take over the dissemination of that information because of the lack of understanding from journalists and policymakers on that front. Speaks to the importance of, of people like you two doing the, this necessary work uh, from organizations that are independent to those LPs and holding them accountable as well as the government as we've been talking about. Um, So, Ricardo, you created your own company, Grasslands. Can you just sort of explain to us what what exactly that company is, what what you do? Absolutely. Yeah, you know, I I was in daily journalism for more than 20 years, and I loved every newspaper I worked at. But unfortunately, it's just turning out to be less and less of a a legitimate path forward for me and for many other mm-hmm. journalists. And so I started Grasslands about a year and a half ago. And we are a public relations agency that also works on content and thought leadership, social media. Um, and we do that for businesses in highly regulated industries. And of course, that certainly includes cannabis and hemp. And drug policy has really um, come out of nowhere in my life because back in 13, when I started covering this beat, I didn't really know much about it. And it has very much become um, a primary issue that I'm passionate about. Um, And so now we do work with a lot of cannabis and hemp businesses, but we also work with blockchain and cryptocurrency. And it's been such a blast to kind of explore that other side of the ball. You know, of course, I'm, I'm a lifelong journalist and I still write columns for a number of different magazines and outlets, including the Daily Beast. But but this is uh, this is been my next my next challenge for my life. And do you find that is there any issue in terms of a conflict of interest with you still writing as a journalist, essentially, but then you also are a part of the industry now? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And I think um, our relationship with uh, media ethics has evolved a lot over mm-hmm. the years. And, you know, I, I lived in daily newsrooms for more than 20 years where I believe those are those are the strongest ethics policies policies that we have in the modern media 
world. And so I just adopted all those policies for what we do now in a realistic way. And so I would never write any journalism, even column. I would never byline anything that had anything to do with a client. And and I just think steering clear of that is, is fairly easy. It's kind of a no-brainer. And so it's something I take very seriously. Um, you you sort of created Grasslands before the cannabis shut down, right? I did, yeah. I left the cannabis about a year, um, year and a half before uh, the Denver Post pulled the funding and the staffing for the website. Did you see that coming? Unfortunately, I did. You know, we started the cannabis in late 2013, me and my colleague Alita, who now works with me at Grasslands. But unfortunately, after I left, we were seven people strong at that time, four people editorial, three ad side. And a couple months after I left, I want to say three to five months after I left, they laid off the GM and redirected the two ad sales execs to sell the entire newspaper, not no longer just the cannabis. And so the minute they did that, it, I think everybody knew that they were no longer investing in making sure that the cannabis was a revenue generating entity. And so at that point, we knew that it was going bye-bye and, and it's tragic. And I absolutely blame the Denver Post for that. And they are dealing with their own struggles, especially as that relates with their owner, which is a New York hedge fund called Alden Global Capital. Right. So the Globe and Mail is starting this, uh, essentially, it's like a trade publication with a thousand dollar a year subscription. And I am curious how ventures like that are going to do or whether or not they will sort of last after the next year or so. Yeah, especially, uh, you know, in uh, face-to-face, head-to-head competition with the Growth Up and some other really great um, outlets up there as well that are putting real resources toward covering this beat. Yeah, the shelf life of how of cannabis reporting is quite an interesting question because I think it, it's going to last at least for the next two years, given the size of the industry and how many questions still need to be answered, um, specifically because when it comes to a company reporting point of view, we actually have not really seen the real revenue numbers, the sales numbers from these companies that will reflect whether they're actually doing well. So that question is always hanging in the balance and there's a lot to report on there. Um, But I also wonder if there's sometimes cannabis fatigue uh, from the point of view of the audience. And I have it. (laughs) I 100% because I have people (laughs) coming to me saying like, oh, my God, my my news feed is just full of weed stories. And I don't care about this. (laughs) There's just so much else to report on. And all I keep seeing is weed stories. So I think it'll be interesting. I don't know if uh, the growth, you know, I guess, like the new Globe and Mail newsletter, I'm not sure if those things have a shelf life of, say, more than three to four years, um, because we're not sure how big the industry will become. Because, for instance, you don't have an equivalent of that in, say, the alcohol industry or the oil and gas industry. I mean, you have industry reports, but like... Yeah, Yeah, I know. And It'll be fun to see two to five years down the line because we're already starting to see that down here because we are five years down the line. Uh, you know, who is reporting on cannabis inside the structure of a daily newsroom or a national TV news outlet? And, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's the agriculture uh, team, you know, or the agriculture reporter. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, I report on Absolutely. corn and soy and cannabis. And and maybe that's Absolutely. the way it should be after, you know, it's, it. and of course, normalization is certainly a process. 
Right. I I wanted to end by just asking you guys for any tips that you have for journalists who are new to this beat or maybe who are hoping to get into this beat. Um, Van, I'll start with you. Yeah, I think uh, building sources in the industry would be my first recommendation if you don't know anything about it, because there's not a lot of literature out there in the form of books and magazines that really get into the plant or, you know, the genetics of it and understand the drugs. I would say talking to people who have worked in the industry for a while, like botanists, geneticists, analysts, uh, investors in the industry, that I've done a lot of learning from that. So I would say maybe, you know, my tip would be start out with that, building sources. Ricardo, how about yourself? Yeah, yeah. This is something Van mentioned earlier, you know, follow the money, especially in such a precarious environment. I mean, Canada is just entering this legal environment where uh, publicly held companies can truly thrive with these crazy valuations that are happening up there. And then down here, we're still stuck in this state by state market that really prevents a federal system. And in many cases, a lot of out of state um, resources, you know, so be inspired by your other colleagues, because this is such a bizarre industry that um, you know it's so segmented and what we do down here in Colorado is interesting to you up there in Toronto but it doesn't apply to your legal market so you should apply it and and see what happens because um, I think we'll always be surprised at what we find when we start digging and my uh, my advice would just be as someone who's covered the black market quite extensively and also the cultural side would be if you're a weed virgin and you you want to report on the space just try it don't be such a narc um, when you go <laughs> yes. when you go to these parties and stuff people kind of there's a little bit of an expectation so I would just say you know don't be terrified it's going legal it's not going to kill you just try it. Start low, go slow. <laughs> <laughs> Microdose. <laughs> <laughs> that was your Canada Land. Canada Land is on Twitter at Canada Land. Their website is canadalandshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at Manisha Krishnan. This episode is produced by Ali Graham. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what Canada Land does, please support them on Patreon. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. 
but not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.